Welcome to CyberCast, decoding today's cyber issues. I'm your host, Kate Macri. When the COVID-19 pandemic swept the globe last spring, a small but dedicated group of cyber defenders gathered at CISA to help protect hospitals, vaccine research, and eventually the vaccine supply chain. But this group, known as CISA's COVID-19 task force, almost never existed. A chance encounter and the CARES Act resulted in the creation of the task force, which drew members with blue mohawks and with expertise in hacking and health data analytics. Over the course of the last year, the task force helped keep critical infrastructure running smoothly and facilitated safe delivery of vaccines into the arms of American citizens. In this episode of CyberCast, several members of CISA's COVID-19 task force will tell the story of how the task force came to be and how it helped protect hospitals and ensure vaccines reached the American people safely. Josh Corman is the founder of IamTheCavalry.org, a grassroots organization focused on the intersection of digital security, public safety, and human life. He is currently a senior advisor on COVID-19 and public safety at CISA. Michelle Holko is a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow with expertise in health data analytics, bioinformatics, and infectious disease research. She is currently detailed to CISA, where she works on healthcare security. And Steve Leginski is the leader of the COVID-19 Task Force. He retired from the Air Force in 2017 after 25 years of service and served as the Deputy Director for Cyber Plans and Operations in the office of the Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon until CISA recruited him last summer. The story of the task force begins with a chance encounter at the 2020 RSA conference between Josh Corman and former CISA director Chris Krebs in his pair of bright red pants. At the RSA conference last year, as Patient Zero was kind of hitting San Francisco and ending that conference early, I was standing with Director Krebs of CISA in his bright red pants and the innovation sandbox. And I said, hey, uh, I'm worried that if this becomes a pandemic, you're going to see unscrupulous actors attacking hospitals, a larger volume and variety of ransoms and other attacks. So I hope I'm wrong. But if I'm not, I'd love to give your entire CISA team a briefing on things we didn't include in our Congressional Task Force report from a couple of years prior on healthcare industry cybersecurity. And he said, oh, I hope I don't need to talk to you, but noted. And a couple of weeks later, as everyone was reeling from what was happening to the world and trying to figure out how bad it was going to be, he called and I thought it was to give him a briefing. And he said, uh, will you come serve your country for a year? We're having this CARES Act hiring authority for one year of service up to one year renewable. Uh, we don't know how the authorities work, but are you willing to do it? So I said, yes, I think a couple, probably concurrently, Steve was being recruited. I didn't yet know Michelle here, but I'm so glad that I do now. And it took a it took a little while, so even fast for government can be a little slow. So we just started researching up what's the ground truth. I'm the founder of a group of volunteer hackers trying to save lives through security research called I Am The Cavalry. Some of our teammates joined the group called Cyber Threat Intelligence League or CTI League. So 
a lot of folks were doing what they could from the outside to identify and take down botnets with our federal partners. And this was more of a evolution of trying to get inside to help keep hospitals providing medical care. The newly created COVID-19 task force was originally charged with defending hospitals from cyber attacks, especially ransomware attacks. But as the pandemic swept the globe, the mission of CIS's COVID-19 cyber defenders shifted to include support for the companies that were key to keeping the healthcare system running, as well as state, local, and tribal governments. But in the middle of all that, the country stood up Operation Warp Speed as well, which was to, to accelerate the development and distribution of vaccines, diagnostics, and therapeutics to help uh, save as many lives as possible in, in record time. And as we were onboarding for several months, a lot of CIS's role became to help support the HHS and CDC efforts and Department of Defense and uh, that whole of government response. And when we got in, I was asked specifically by Director Krebs to develop a strategy to kind of be the chief strategist for the pandemic response. They asked for a 30 day hypothesis and I said, I don't think the country has 30 days. So we just rapidly tried to dig in and learn as much as we could before we got there and right after. The task force created a big list of critical companies they expected to be targeted by cyber criminals or nation state actors during the pandemic. But Josh and Steve also wanted to check in with these companies' supply chains and smaller companies that might not have had the cyber resources to weather the sudden surge in cyber crime. We saw these Operation Warp Speed targets. You probably know their names like Merck and Pfizer and Moderna, and we figured they might have large multinational cyber risk management programs. Of course, we should help them. But I said, what are the small, less obvious suppliers in their supply chain that, if disrupted, could have an asymmetric impact on the overall value chain and what could cost human life or undermine U.S. interests? Steve said there were even some big companies that needed CISA's help to develop a solid cyber strategy during the pandemic. The tagline that you normally hear about CIS as the nation's risk advisor, it fit very well in the sense of what do these companies need? Right. Even the more mature companies didn't have all the things that we can offer so we could add to their programs. And while there was some repetition and overlap, there were other things that CISA can offer. So that was, you know, again, additive to what they had. And then for the, some of the smaller, uh, the small to medium sized businesses, they absolutely did not, you know, the, the consistent, as you would expect, is they didn't have as much capability. So we were able to add just that much more and be able to help them out, which is, again, part of CISA's mission. So understanding what they needed, being able to have the conversation, being able to explain effectively that, yes, we really can bring things that you don't have across the range of you know, mature and less mature cyber uh, security programs uh, was one of the benefits of those engagements. Michelle Holko helped the task force narrow its focus on critical supply chains due to her wealth of experience in genomics, bioinformatics, and even mRNA vaccine research six years ago, before COVID-19 was on anyone's radar. Michelle worked her way through various government jobs as a Presidential Innovation Fellow at NIH and DARPA, and then transitioned to CISA's COVID-19 Task Force after passage of the CARES Act. 
Joining the task force was almost a surreal experience for Michelle. She was joining forces with other professionals from very different backgrounds to try and find a way to safeguard America's critical infrastructure and the efforts to defeat the pandemic. The spirit of willingness was huge. And I, and I really thank the CARES Act for that, for bringing in fresh talent from the private sector, for creating the multidisciplinary team that we needed, and for bringing in people that were essentially the coalition of the willing. You know, And we, we didn't know that we were necessarily going to have the answer right away, but we were darn sure going to try. <laughs> Michelle joined Josh in scouring their big list of critical companies to understand how each played a role and combating the pandemic, which she said was important for devising security plans to protect them. This was still in the early stages of the pandemic, so speed was key. In these first weeks, the situation was we were on the receiving end of lists of companies that all of the interagency and international partners believed were critical to their COVID response, and that if any of these targets had were hit, or taken down, you know, by any type of cyber or physical security attack, that it would be critical and, and lives would be lost. And so, but at the same time, you know, the folks that were receiving lists and putting them together didn't really have the, the right context to understand what those companies were and what they did. And so it was a little bit of confusion and, and nobody really knew what to do with them. And so, you know, since it's a it's the field that you know I, I have expertise in. I just started looking at the list, <laughs> literally, you know, just kind of line by line, looking at the companies, most of them were familiar. If not, I would figure out, you know, use some um, OSINT methods, open source intelligence methods, aka Google, <laughs> to figure out, you know, who they were, what they did, why they were in the news about COVID, you know, what piece of the puzzle did they, um, did, were they making? And then think about, you know, what was the impact of that on potentially other products? So it really was a very manual process at first. And we didn't really know what we were doing, to be honest, but we knew that something was better than nothing. And so we did develop this method to rank and prioritize these companies. And then early on, you know, once we got the method together, it was a fast and furious couple of weeks, really trying to push towards that finish line and have a product. Uh, but once we did, we were able to validate that we thought it was working, you know, on two fronts. Number one, a lot of the targets that we already knew were important because they were, you know, had tiger teams as a part of Operation Warp Speed, you know, a lot of those fell to the top. But at the same time, some companies that had not been on the radar, not even from any of our U.S.-based um, stakeholders, but were instead given to us by our international colleagues, they also fell to the top. And then we started, when we started to look at them, uh, we realized that, yes, absolutely, that product was critical. It would qualify as, you know, under this definition of ball bearing in this context. Um, and so we were able to prioritize reach out to those critical, you know, more impactful companies rather than, you know, just starting from the top or some random place. One thing the task force figured out pretty quickly was the list of critical companies wasn't nearly as comprehensive as it needed to be. Josh, Michelle, and Steve worried that some smaller suppliers for these companies would become targets of cyber criminals and nation-state actors seeking to sabotage American vaccine efforts, or even just to make a quick buck. 
the team realized they needed to help beef up some of these smaller companies and critical suppliers' security postures. We spotted one particular entity that was not on any U.S. list. They were fairly important to any DNA or mRNA candidate. And now that we know more, you can see that uh, many of our successful approved vaccines, uh, like Pfizer and Moderna, are mRNA-based. And this particular player, you know, one of our rubrics was how many dependencies are there? How many people, how many of these candidates depend on this entity? Another one, though, is what's the scarcity of that? Is it ample supply with ample alternatives all the way down to single supply with no alternatives? And we found one that was uh, fairly rare, fairly small, not on anyone's radar, but vital to some of what actually made it into my arm and my children's arm. So when we found them, we fought really hard to get them nominated onto the list to make sure that we, they would qualify for certain services. Uh, we haven't talked much about the services, so we probably should for a moment. But my deep fear, sadly validated, was not only did they not have a global risk management and cybersecurity team, they had three IT people zero security people and no program to shake a stick at. You could sneeze on them and cause a disruption that would kill a whole lot of people. So it really validated the analysis from Michelle and others. And we use that analytical rigor to then make the argument to nominate them for a higher priority level of access and ultimately got them into the Operation Warp Speed rings of service level, which got them access to more things for more agencies, things not just some of the services that everybody qualified for, as long as CISA had resources, was one of them we call cyber hygiene or vulnerability scanning of your edge or your network. And while that's not going to be you know, a sufficient risk management program for anybody, it could identify low-hanging fruit like a known vulnerability on your VPN or your email exchange or something that could pivot into taking out the factory. Uh, as we've seen too many times in the last several years. We also could enroll people into an intelligence overwatch where the intelligence community can look out for adversary chatter, planning to attack their name, their IP, their domains, their IP addresses. And maybe I can't stop that attack, but I can give early warning. They would get prioritized access to things like threat hunting or incident response, also taxpayer funded for these critical infrastructure players. But we wanted to be left of boom wherever possible with available resources that could be prioritized to give them and meet them where they were. And then we had to be very smart about sequencing, crawl, walk, run, what can give immediate value versus midterm value versus long-term value. Because while the most important project might be something like an architecture design review of their manufacturing, it may take six months to do and two years to act upon. And we're really focused on the time horizon of this sprint and race to a cure. So I think we were all very relieved and, and very proud of nominating some of these less obvious ball bearings to get them engaged. And some of them benefited from either early warning or we helped stop attacks and not make headlines. And some of them that were a little reluctant at first, no one likes to get a call from the government, you know, that old cliche of here, we're, we're from the government, we're here to help. They didn't realize we're not a regulator for them. We're not law enforcement. We're fire prevention and firefighting. We're here to help you. And as some of them signed up reluctantly, others um, uh, eventually heard from their peer group that what we were doing was valuable and started to trust this more. 
And we'll never know how much of our outcomes to get vaccines into people's arms and high production was luck versus preparedness. But I like to think the harder you work, the luckier you get. But as the task force got its bearings on the state of cybersecurity at critical companies participating in the vaccine supply chain, the nation's hospitals began to buckle under the stress of ransomware. One of the things, important things we did is, while most people before the CARES Act hires were, had shifted their focus to vaccine supply chains, obviously important, we were still having significant stressors on the delivery of patient care across 5,600 plus hospitals in the U.S. And I'd like to be able to say that we could focus on just one thing at a time, but part of the concept of operations really made sure that we had some support for Operation Warp Speed, those 30 or so designated, funded, high-priority targets that were critical to developing and distributing first-of-a-kind vaccines for this type of virus. Uh, We weren't even sure it was possible, so we had to have this dynamic risk analysis at all times to see how much more important therapeutics or diagnostics or other things may be in non-medical interventions. But we also realized uh, the hospitals are still quite prone, still having significant frontline worker shortages, equipment shortages, lots of ransomware activity, and even you know a lot of burnout. Doctors were retiring early from the fatigue or from getting sick, and that's going to take years to recover from. And then sadly, in September, as we're standing up a lot of these things, we saw the largest attack on U.S. soil in history for healthcare, the UHS uh, attacks in September affecting some fairly large chunk of their 400 facilities, some of which had to divert ambulances to other hospitals, which is fine, if, uh, maybe fine if you're in a city and there's excess capacity, not so good when you're in the middle of a rural area and the next nearest facility may be too far away to save life. So a pretty harrowing. And as we're learning how to, at least for me, a non-govy, trying to figure out how to navigate the interagency dynamics and who has which authorities and what's my line anyhow. We were in the aftermath of that first big one, and we got credible intelligence of an intent to attack plural U.S. hospitals in the, in the month of October. And we had to very quickly, without knowing the right protocols, work very, very closely with the FBI, with Health and Human Services, with our own CISA folks to put out a joint alert warn a whole lot of people, many of whom are target rich, but cyber poor and can't really act upon these, many of whom even the large funded hospitals had furloughed or reduced workforce for things like cybersecurity and uh, ensure that we could protect any sort of uh, excessive loss of life from an already harrowing. I think at that point, we were losing almost 4,000 Americans per day to the disease and a whole bunch more behind the scenes just from the inability to get timely patient care, given the saturation rates for these hospitals. Part of the task force's challenge was preventing significant cyber disruptions at hospitals so that they could continue to function during the pandemic. That large group of hospitals needed our help more than they ever had before. Those attacks would have been devastating without a pandemic, and they were especially harmful during a pandemic, probably the most famous of which was uh, the University of Vermont outages in late October. They were uh, disrupted for across up to 118 facilities across upstate New York, Vermont, and New Hampshire, a pretty dominant presence in that state. And they uh, were down pretty hard for 28 days. That's a 
harrowing tale could not administer i think one of the the most talked about one in the new york times article from perloth and company were that they could not administer chemotherapy for people midway through their cancer treatment nor could they export the cocktail recipes to have it administered elsewhere they were starting from scratch at brand new facilities maybe several states away from their home surgeries postponed diagnostics postponed there was one story of a mother, a single mother of two kids who didn't know if her cancer was back, but couldn't check uh, without driving to Massachusetts to find out. So it's pretty scary anytime to have such a pronounced impact on something as material to public safety, human life as hospital and healthcare delivery. But the twists and turns of this pandemic have been very important to have a well-balanced multidisciplinary team a bunch of folks who brought a sense of urgency and specific knowledge of how hospitals work or medical devices work or ransomware works and the like. Key to the mission was keeping hospitals from going offline for extended periods of time due to cyber attacks, like ransomware attacks. As Josh points out, a whopping 85% of hospitals don't have a single security professional on staff. If a hospital's data is being held hostage, it can't operate, which can lead to loss of life. It was a year ago, but it feels like uh, several years ago now, but we were all talking about the importance of flattening the curve. And that wasn't so much to prevent how many people got sick, but rather to space them out because hospitals had no room, had no equipment, and had not enough ventilators. And it was to ensure we didn't have elective additional surplus loss of life from those resource constraints. So if you're already struggling to care for the patient volume coming in as we tried to flatten the curve, any disruption from ransom or cyber attack would have been lethal. And sadly, there was significant activity there. They were also attacking the personal protective equipment, ventilator supply chains, nitrile gloves and the like. And that was, I think, a huge chunk of the motivation for the CARES Act. And that CARES Act was not merely used by CISA, but I think it was heavily used by CISA amongst other agencies as a way to bring in some of that talent. And since very few people know what CISA is or what its mission is as the newest federal agency, just two years old, one of the functions is to be the nation's risk management advisor. And we have a, a mission for all 16 critical infrastructure sectors of which healthcare and public health is a huge one even when there is no pandemic. So to that end, they really wanted to bring in a lot of domain expertise for people who have worked in and around healthcare and healthcare tech uh, so that we knew not to give flippant advice to hospitals, but really targeted. And I'll, I guess I'll put a, a tiny color on it. Uh, I had served, one of the reasons Krebs recruited me is I had served on a congressional task force for healthcare industry cybersecurity as part of the CISA 2015 law. And in that, we spotted some things like that 85% of hospitals don't have a single security person on staff. We spotted that they tend to be, number two, protecting legacy unsupported software more than other industries like Windows XP was a, often a best case scenario. Number three of five was we encountered that most hospitals have wide, flat, unsegmented networks. So an attack anywhere can take out the entire hospital versus just one a piece of equipment, one bed, one floor, one wing, and tended to be exposed to the outside world. Number four, when we started the task force, people thought this was about privacy. I said, I love my privacy. I'd like to be alive to enjoy it. 
So we had started to see patient care could be disrupted by early ransoms like Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital in 2016, or maybe ending our task force with WannaCry decimating 40% of healthcare delivery in the UK. And then lastly, if we thought this would be a rare occurrence, we saw that a typical medical device had a thousand or more known vulnerabilities in them. And while not all are exploitable, it only takes one. And we knew that that was the ground truth before the pandemic. So what I wanted to ensure and Krebs wanted to ensure was that CISA didn't just try to give flippant advice that could not be acted upon, but rather fit for purpose, targeted help, assistance, education, resources. And if we had the, the services, we should give them. And if we didn't, we should get creative and work with the private sector, hacker community, uh, or innovators to prototype band-aids and tourniquets to keep things moving and flowing with a whole of government and a whole of community approach. Up until now, Josh and other cyber experts struggled to make the case for the federal government to really take cybersecurity seriously because they were unable to show how cyber attacks can directly lead to loss of life. The pandemic changed that. We tried to set a pathos for this group that the country needs us, the planet needs us. Let's try to lean in instead of assume someone else will do it. And to that end, uh, some of the things that one of my favorite cells that Steve touched on was the analysis cell. So these are people that are really good at doing analytical products, looking at national risks, anticipating them, tracking them, decomposing them. And we had access to quite a few data scientists. And this is still a new field for, you know, it's not a new field. It's the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. But uh, at least in these government circles, we were able to take, you know, uh, public CDC data, public uh, bed count data, and start to like really drive some insights. So maybe uh, this is where I'll talk about some of those. In my work in that volunteer group of hackers we've been working on, we were told when we founded ourselves almost eight years ago on August 1st, they said, no one will listen to you until uh, there's proof of a loss of life, Josh. No one's going to listen. And while we had some pretty profound impact prior to that, that has always been a key milestone and threshold of until people have clearly lost life due to cyber attack, um, there will be a lack of political support, political will, public uh, sentiment. And uh, while we knew cyber attacks had cost lives, it was really difficult to find that smoking gun moment. And a concern we had was, while these cyber attacks probably did contribute to degraded and delayed patient care prior to the pandemic, we just knew there's no slack in the system. So I'm going to lay down a few tiny things here. But we knew before the pandemic, uh, based on a New England Journal of Medicine article, that 4.4 minutes of an extra, extra long ambulance ride during a US marathon had a statistically significant impact on mortality rates for heart attacks. So if you had a 4.4 minute longer ambulance ride, you were more likely to be dead in, in, in 30 days. So that was not about cyber at all, but it showed that degraded delayed care for that condition can lead to death. Number two, we know that for strokes, you have the golden hour or golden hours of one to three or four hours is the difference between life and death for saving brain and saving life. So if 4.4 minutes can affect loss of life for heart attacks and four hours is the difference between life and death for a stroke, what can four weeks do in most of the state of Vermont, pandemic or otherwise? 
And so what we started to do is we looked at public CDC data and in the one year anniversary-ish timeframe of when the pandemic started, the US hit that sobering milestone of 500,000 dead Americans from COVID. But what got less talk in this public data was across the country, there were also at the same time horizon about 150,000 excess deaths from non-COVID conditions. Many of those non-COVID conditions were time-sensitive ones like heart attacks and strokes. So how many extra people died because they either afraid to go to a hospital, couldn't get into one once they tried, or maybe even in some cases, uh, the hospitals weren't available due to cyber disruption. So we already had most of those deaths, obviously, were from excess capacity and COVID saturation and the various different things. But we took it upon ourselves to say even one death is too many from elective disruption from cyber attack. We, we must be better. And that's why we were so diligent across the government with those warnings in October. And while we successfully warned quite a few, many couldn't act upon it. And there were quite a few victims, as you saw in public reporting. But the data scientists really, really were helpful. What they started to notice were a couple of useful things, and we're working on further enriching these models. But one is that when we started paying attention to the correlation between ICU bed counts and those CDC excess deaths, there was strong and positive correlation that once you hit a certain bed count rate, uh, you would see increased excess deaths two, four, and six weeks later. So we knew about the magic sweet spot that puts you in the danger zone for extra deaths. And then when we zoned in specifically to the state's hardest hit during that October ransom campaign, the hospitals in at least Vermont that had incurred a cyber attack achieved that stress level much faster than their other peer organizations controlling for other variables. And maybe you're listening saying, of course, water is wet and fire is hot. Of course, bed count saturation is going to lead to the loss of life. And of course, ransoms can trigger that four minute, four minute, four hour delay or not, and bump up the deaths for heart attacks or strokes. But I think we have been reluctant to admit this in the past. And now, sadly, one of the, the silver linings of the pandemic is it has helped us to better understand the system dynamic of how IT and cyber resilience can affect patient care. Because even if the water lines recede and we go back to normal levels of bed emissions, what we've essentially seen from that system dynamic and can isolate out for other variables is if we don't have sufficient regional capacity for stroke or heart attack, even during peacetime and well after the pandemic's done, we will know that a certain level of outage for a certain duration can affect mortality rates. And hopefully we can study this and use this for left of boom, proactive planning to make sure that hospitals have enough redundant systems and that there's no unacceptable radius of distance between them. Normally what you do during a ransom attack is divert ambulances to the next nearest facility. But if that next nearest facility has no room at the end because of current COVID saturation, those strategies fell down. And number two is even after the pandemic's done, if that normal radius of next nearest is too far away, now we know relatively which conditions are more likely to suffer from electronic disruption. And as the nation's risk management advisor, we can ensure they are harder targets, less easy to disrupt so that we have fewer interruptions. But also on the right of boom, if we have a bunch of attacks happen at the same time, we can use a data-driven analysis to know which hospitals need our help the most to affect patient care delivery and timely patient care. 
So uh, we're not anywhere near done, but the kind of insights and the kind of mitigations we've, and the kind of experiments we've, we've tried to teach the federal government, we're trying to capture as many as we can in the after action reports. We're looking deeper into the data. We're trying to make sure that the recovery later makes the proper investments, not just in more doctors and nurses, but also in defensible, resilient, maintainable infrastructure. So these national critical functions are not imperiled. As vaccine research and development ramped up into fall 2020, the COVID-19 task force realized they soon had a new problem on their hands, how to protect the last mile delivery of vaccines from potential hackers seeking ransom. It looked like Pfizer was going to be the first to the finish line. And we didn't even know for when, when Michelle and I were scoring these, we didn't know if any of them would be possible. The species has never made a successful vaccine for this style of virus. So seeing at least one hit the finish line was a pretty big breakthrough. But then we quickly found out a bunch of surprises, such as it wasn't going to use the standard expected, well-practiced operation warp speed logistics that we had all been talking about. All the candidates were going to accept for Pfizer. So we kept talking about the last mile problem, uh, and it turned out it was going to be the last 1,500 miles problem or more. But the, the harder part was that its initial requirements for cold chain and cold storage required it be kept at minus 80 degrees Celsius, which is unspeakably cold. And what people may not appreciate or know is there was stunningly few refrigerators in the country or could be made that could accommodate that ultra cold storage. And there were several smart people doing several smart things to accommodate keeping cold things cold consistently and safely across space and time to the various states that would need it. But a very large chunk of this required dry ice production, dry ice distribution. And a lot of us cybersecurity experts or infectious disease experts had to very, very, very quickly become logistics and supply chain experts on dry ice. So um, some of our other fantastic teammates like uh, Kendra and, uh, and others did things in record time for any government action. And we got smart on these things. We wrote up some Socratic uh, critical questions and considerations for cold chain, cold storage attacks. At the same time, we saw some ransomware attacks hit AmeriCold in the public news, which was a cold, cold chain franchise not ultra cold and not being used by Pfizer, but still indicative that adversaries were interested in targeting and disrupting cold chain and cold storage. And uh, it turns out that while most states felt they had enough dry ice production, a lot of assumptions were made. Like, for example, one of the raw materials needed to make dry ice is a byproduct of gas production. Gas production was down, so therefore raw materials were down. Another assumption is they thought they can get dry ice from one corner of the state to another corner of the state, but dry ice sublimates quickly across space and time. Another assumption specifically <laughs> in one state is uh, this was all happening in December and the peak export from that state for cheese for the holiday season requires a whole ton of pre-purchased agreements on dry ice. So there was a contention with cheese shipments during Christmas. So ultimately, we did a fairly good job identifying the weakest spots in dry ice production and logistics, and we gave advice to cold chain, cold storage people, even uh, almost like a spy thriller moment where we had to very, very quickly create a PDF of guidance for the owners and operators of smart connected cold chain devices, such that it could be printed out and put on the pallets of the very first shipments 
of these uh, these vaccines so that when the owners and operators received them, they knew how to get help from CISA to change default passwords or harden remote attack surface so that they don't have a life-saving delivery of the first approved vaccines only to have them spoiled by adversaries seeking to make a ransom. CISA became concerned about the vaccine supply chain and specifically the cold storage requirements for the vaccine when cold storage warehousing and transportation company Americold was hacked in November 2020. The fact that hackers targeted Americold implied that they knew the vaccine rollout was approaching and that the vaccine needed strict cold storage requirements. Josh said he worried hackers were already looking for ways to sabotage delivery of vaccines to hospitals, pharmacies, and other vaccination sites across America. So as I, as I indicated, there was some public reporting of successful ransom attacks against a chain of cold storage called AmeriCold. They were not vital to any of the actual vaccine candidates, but it, it did indicate adversary interest. There are lots of parts of government. So as we've spotted threats and risks, we asked other parts of government with different authorities and different capabilities to watch and deter and disrupt um, as best we could. There were several attacks in the overall ecosystem of either manufacturing or support equipment that were successful. Different crews from both nation states and ransom criminal organizations, some of which were ransom, some were DDoS for extortion. So just denial of service attacks in order to extract monies. So uh, part of our, and this might be a good chance for Steve to talk a little bit more about the composition of the task force and how many different cells, functional cells we had and why, but uh, we had to be vigilant on anticipated and planned risks across that multi-legged relay race. Different adversaries had different objectives and manifested at different levels across that relay race from R&D and clinical trials. You can imagine espionage, right? Stealing recipes, things like that. Confidentiality of IP, intellectual property. In the scaled production and fill and finish, you're now adding uh, the potential for accidental disruption and destruction to manufacturing lines because these environments are so brittle that even an attempt to get some money, uh, even if uh, Bo likes to say uh, malicious intent is not a prerequisite to harm. So even if the goal was to extract money, you could still do multiple months of cyber physical damage to an assembly line just from a ransom activity. And then third, when you get to cold chain, cold storage and distribution, there's you start to get a lot more physical threats as well. Many of these transports had to have escorts and tracking and physical security and background checks and the handoffs. And people were trying to steal um, stuff or steal empty vials for counterfeiting purposes. And throughout this entire time, uh, we also had a very aggressive foreign adversary involvement in MISTIS and malinformation to drive up hesitancy. So uh, one of the that is one of the most disappointing parts of this whole pandemic is that while we did a great job creating the world's the species first successful vaccines for this type of virus, we were significantly less successful as a whole of government, including international partners at fighting back against the misinformation, disinformation and malinformation that was used to sow seeds of doubt in the public. And with so many categories of vaccine hesitancy, 
the, the constraint no longer was, can we produce one or can we get enough doses for our citizens, but can we get enough people to take them? And is it even possible to achieve herd immunity given those hesitancy levels? So every single chapter or turn or twist has required us to refactor this multidisciplinary team to focus on the next constraint or anticipate the next constraint. And in some cases, we were able to avoid the harm. In other cases, we continue to be victim of them. Steve said much of the task force's work to protect hospitals, critical infrastructure, and the vaccine supply chain were part of an interagency effort to help keep the nation running smoothly during this unprecedented time in our history. The whole idea that the CARES Act and the way that we formed up with the concept of operations was based on multidisciplinary. So folks with all these different backgrounds, folks like the CARES Act being brought in from the outside, the private sector experience, subject matter expertise across healthcare, operational technology, risk management, infectious disease, all of those things, but combining them with existing expertise like what CISA brings so that when you pull together an operation cell that manages moving the information around, keeping track, uh, and if an alert comes in, who needs to get it, how we pull together a team to react to that, um, an intelligence cell uh, and tracking both classified and unclassified, what's going on when whether it's at the nation state level or you know across the nation at a local level. Um, we had folks in plans. They were the ones that helped you know, in the drafting that we did, the initial draft, and then subsequently the things that I was involved with that then became our CONOPS, and then all the follow-on planning activities to keep the operation going, and so continuing through all of them. So we've had a, a variety of things in addition to specific leads across these you know, how we're supporting Operation Warp Speed, how we're supporting uh, the work with the ball bearing entities, and then also with the healthcare delivery and that ransomware uh, incidents, the work that was done that Josh mentioned before. And then, of course, that risk management and analysis team that just broadly across all of those efforts provided us with all of that deep, deep analysis. And, and throughout all of that, the other key part of this is you had another group of those CARES Act hires with specific expertise that Josh was leading, and they were the ones providing that high-level expertise, the big strategy that then was easy to hand over and say, Steve, task force, this is what we envision, and this is what we need done, and then all those other teams coming together and putting that into action. And so, you know, we mentioned before the things we did to support warp speed. But Warp Speed, uh, huge, huge effort. And their primary concern was the federal side, so that once the vaccines made it to the state and local levels, it was then up to each state to get those vaccines delivered and put into people's arms. So that was a whole nother level that uh, wasn't a part of their mission. And But fortunately, again, by having this task force because CISA's mission is not just federal, but it's also that state, local, tribal, and territorial. That is where CISA was able to provide, again, that expertise on the physical security and the cybersecurity to helping out states and the, uh, the local, tribal, territorial also. For Michelle, one of the most rewarding parts of this experience was seeing how much her work and CISA's 
impacted companies and communities facing overwhelming cyber threats during the pandemic. But also one of the things that that I think is fantastic is that we're now we're now getting outreach from, you know, the folks that we worked with during that time offering to, you know, share their experience working with CISA in an effort to, you know, share with the community, with the sector that, you know, CISA is there to help and, you know, it was a good experience and that it was helpful. You know, a lot of times the the security personnel that we end up talking to are able to use the engagement with CISA to encourage their executive leadership that this is a priority, right? And so sometimes we're just kind of that, you know, tip that allows companies to really take control of their security. Steve said the task force began as an opportunity to work together with all of government to protect and support the American people. And it still is. When uh, we were standing up the task force, what it enabled us to do, I think of it as synchronize and align. We had a lot of different efforts going on across our agency. And so now with this extra expertise coming in, to look at how do we help hospitals that are already under stress, let alone if they're having ransomware, but also how do we do better with our support to Operation Warp Speed uh, and that group that continues on even as the name has changed. And so by pulling all of that together, what it enabled us to do was deliver the best cyber and physical security services that CISA had to offer in conjunction with and working with our interagency partners. Um, And so our regional teams and how they uh, would meet these entities, have the conversations that allowed them to assess what's their maturity level, what can we offer that adds to their security programs and their mitigation efforts. In addition to what can the other parts of the federal government do to help those entities. So That was great to see, you know, as you would imagine in a crisis, the interagency coming together, getting those things to work together, and then being a part of that and helping coordinate those actions. Even though U.S. states are reopening and fully vaccinated people are starting to live what we would consider normal lives pre-pandemic, COVID-19 is still ravaging other countries, and the economic, political, and social fallout is still reverberating across America. The work of CISA's COVID-19 task force is not done. These cyber defenders, like modern-day superheroes, are still working day and night to ensure the nation's critical infrastructure remains intact and functional as we approach the end of the pandemic. To hear more about the COVID-19 task force, tune in to our June 24th event, Cyberscape Healthcare, where Josh Corman, and other members of CISA and the task force will discuss their endeavors and accomplishments during the COVID-19 pandemic. To learn more about federal cybersecurity, subscribe to CyberCast for the latest cyber insight. I'm your host, Kate Macri. Thank you for listening. CyberCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.